Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by lawyer, law professor, and nationally syndicated radio host, Yu Hewitt, author of the new book, The Queen, The Epic Ambition of Hillary and the Coming of a Second Clinton Era. Yu, thanks for joining us today. Ben, I love coming to the East Coast when I meet young people like you. People on the East Coast, New York City, have been calling me Yu Hewitt forever, so I love Yu Hewitt. But, but everyone else called me Hugh Hewitt, but you people in New York, you do it. And, and it's the funniest doggone thing in Rhode Island and Boston. I take it you're from the city originally. Yep, around right here. around here. Yep. Yeah, I love being back in New York. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. You start your book by invoking Machiavelli as the prince. So what was your motivation for providing Hillary with a template to bury us, not just Republicans, but the country? if we're not already doomed in the first place. Uh, Machiavelli wrote The Prince 500 years ago. You were Columbia trained, so you read The Prince probably as a freshman. So you know that it was written for the Medici who had thrown out the Republic of which Machiavelli was part. And they threw him in jail and they tortured him and they let him go. And he wrote up this letter for Lorenzo di Medici, The Prince, and said, this is how you had to run the city. This is how you had to govern. And it became known as being the ultimate in apolitical, amoral advice. It is better to be feared than loved. The ends justify the means. It's a, it's a beautiful book. It's wonderful. It's completely amoral. It's not immoral. It's just, if you want to run things, here's how you do it. So I put it, it was published 500 years ago this year, give or take a year. We're uncertain of the date that it came out. So I was doing a podcast with Dr. Larry Arn at Hillsdale College sure. about the prince a year ago. And I thought to myself, I'm going to put on my Machiavelli. I'm going to channel my, channel my inner David Axelrod and write The Queen. And so The Queen came out this week, and The Queen is my letter to Hillary about how she should, in fact, win. Now, why would I tell her that? Because I think forewarned is forearmed. I can put a curse on all of the things she ought to do. Uh, they might be viewed as poison pills. And I can alert people to some of the obvious things she's going to do. For example, it's obvious to me if she's the next president, when a justice of the Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, retires, she will name Senator Gillibrand. And when she names Senator Gillibrand, that will open up Hillary's old Senate seat. And who do you think, Ben, is going to run for Hillary's new old Senate well, seat? Just like Hillary before her, Miss Chelsea Clinton. Chelsea Clinton. And I told that to Mika Brzezinski on uh, Morning Joe on Monday. And she lit up. She, oh, what a great idea. It hadn't occurred to her, though. But it's the most obvious thing in the world. Well, if you write, like, Deval Patrick is her obvious vice presidential choice. Uh, you, you might go full girl and go with uh, Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota, just go full-on woman ticket. But my book is an attempt to anticipate everything she does so that when she does it, her Machiavellian side is exposed. I want to be able to point back to the queen and say, I told you so. She's going to run against the Electoral College. She's going to promise amnesty. So the queen, has, that's its primary purpose. Its second purpose is I hope it makes the New York Times bestseller list because if it does, it will be there and it will annoy the hell out of her, right? It will It'll be do better than her queen. book, certainly. Yeah, well, her, oh, did you read Hard Choices? <laughs> I did. You did? did? You and I are the only yeah. guys who did Hard Choices. <laughs> oh, and you're alive to tell the story. Still alive. You have to know thy enemy. You're right, know right, thy that, enemy. That's exactly right. And forewarned is forearmed. Since we're talking in the hypothetical realm here, one thing that I've always thought about, and I don't, I don't think his ego would allow him to do it, nor would he necessarily want to do the work, but what if Barack Obama were to appoint himself a Supreme Court justice and push Ruth Bader Ginsburg out of the way? Well, he can't push her out, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg is one of, I, mean, I, I, I write in the queen that Hillary has going for her that she's resilient. She's like the permanent cornea transplant that no one knew we got in 1992. <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg makes her look like a piker. And I happen to have had the honor to have clerked for Judge 
uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, not justice, on the D.C. Circuit in 1983 to 84 when my judge became ill. Uh, and they passed, my judge was Roger Robb, and they passed us around, first to Bork, then to Scalia, then to Ginsburg, then to Spots Robinson, uh, Spotswood Robinson, for two weeks at a time. So I worked for her long, long going forward. She's a tough, tough, ideologically consistent fighter, and she's nice. So she won't go. Uh, and uh, I always wondered who would go, who would be put up there next, and he's not going to get another next, because even if she steps down, McConnell won't let it happen. Mm -hmm. What You go through sort of a five-point plan for what Hillary should do. Give us the high notes in terms of what you envision for her strategy to The first thing the she had to do every day in every speech is attack the Electoral College. The Electoral College was a genius design of our founders to make sure that rural America and small-town America was not overwhelmed by this city. This was, the, the, the whole Electoral College is designed to keep this city of New York from taking over the world. It's another check and balance. It's another check and balance. And so if she runs against it, though, she can do so on an appeal to race and identity politics and gender politics. Why doesn't your vote count as much as the vote of some old white farmer rancher in Wyoming? And in fact, your vote doesn't count as much as some old white farmer in Wyoming because the framers wanted the Congress to concern themselves with old white farmers in Wyoming. But she can use that to powerful effect. The idea of one person, one vote and you know, Gore had the popular vote. You know how this goes. Sure. So she ought to do that every single day. She also ought to be explicitly, blatantly saying, I will give citizenship to everyone in this country who does not have a felony. Every single day. It's what President Obama would like to say, but he still checked a little bit. Hillary ought to campaign on that. And uh, we ought to say in response, no, we will allow regularization, but, but never citizenship. If you enter the country illegally, you can't be a lawbreaker and be a citizen. But you can stay if you're not, you're not in trouble. She ought to run as a hawk. Uh, she can get some of our national security conservatives with her if she says, I will commit to doing 5% of the gross domestic product to defense. Right now we're going to fall below 2.5% um, uh, GDP. She ought to double that. She ought to build ships faster than the Liberty ships came off the line in the 40s during World War, I, uh, World War II. And, and then she also ought to... Uh, uh, be out there urging fracking on everyone. She had to be, what, Tom Steyer not going to support? I mean, uh, where, what are the Greens going to do? support? Yeah, Ralph, Ralph, Ralph Nader. Yeah, and Ralph Nader's trying to get back in the game, but he's, what, a million years old, and he, he's scary. Uh, <laughs> and I was in a green room with Ralph Nader once, and we were having fun. True story, Ben, I'll uh, divert with um, Tim Pawlenty, Rahm Emanuel, myself, and Ariana Huffington. And we were what having, a crew. It was, it was a blast. It was George, <laughs> this week with George Stephanopoulos during the 2008 election. And uh, we were all in to do our thing. And everyone was having a blast because in green rooms, you relax and you're normal human beings. And I've known Ariana four Arianas ago, right? I, I've known her since 1992 when Michael Huffington, her then husband, ran for Senate. And I love Ariana. She's just, you know, completely wrong. But we were having a good time. Ralph Nader walked into the room and it was like we'd all been transported to a mausoleum in which a funeral was being held. <laughs> it was like uh, Vold, uh, Voldemort walked into the room. And so that's... I hope he runs. It's just for yucks. One of the things that's interesting, and well, in terms of your sort of Machiavellian plan for her, knowing your Nixon background, is that you talk about a patronage plan for Hillary where she's basically able to extend her power over all of the counties. And that reminded me of Nixon because when Nixon was building back up when everyone thought he was done, he reached out to the heads, the Republican heads of every county in the country and ingratiated himself with them and used that ultimately to catapult himself. Good Nixon knowledge. 
How do you well, know your Nixon? Well, I read Pat Buchanan's book on it, so he okay, gave the new book by Evan Thomas being Nixon is pretty good. I saw Evan on Meet the Press this past weekend, and I'm going to have him down in my studio in California when he comes out there. But you're right. Between '62 and '68, Richard Nixon worked the ropes. Uh, he he worked every county fair and every county dinner, uh, methodically moving through and developing a political patronage system. What I suggest in the prints is that Hillary proposed a national uh, extraction severance tax on oil and natural gas because it makes sense. You and I, they didn't make the oil and natural gas. It's not even that hard to find anymore. I mean, it's not like they're wildcatters out there. They have, they have machines that tell you where the oil and the natural gas is. You just have to get the price point to the right point. You go get it, and you know what it costs. So if we take 10 or 15% off the top, she ought to give half that money to D.C. and half that money to the counties and establish boards of local control over that money, which she staffs. She'll have a patronage network, second only to Andrew Jackson. And God love Andrew Jackson. He was a patronage man first, so was I. Our, one of our forebears, I know Glenn doesn't like Teddy Roosevelt, I kind of like him, but he did invent the Civil Service Commission. That's a nightmare. Now called the OPM. I was the general counsel and deputy director of the Office of Personnel Management. It's a horrible thing. Patronage should be the way of the world. We should not let people sit in Washington and be goofballs forever. And OPM managed to release my data and 3 million people's other SF-86 to the Chinese this week. So I'm not really happy with the, the Office of Personal Management right now. Well, it's the nature of bureaucracy. Yeah. Yeah. They're not good. They're not <laughs> nimble. They're not fast. They're not ready to move on a story. And then they sent out... Have you been following this story? This oh, yeah. They Absolutely. sent out a link to everyone. All the people... I haven't looked at my email yet. I, I'm sure I got it because I was in the government from with Reagan from 84 through 89. And that's when I was at OPM in the White House Counsel's Office in Justice. But I got, they're sending out a, an email to everyone. Dear federal employee, your data's been compromised. Please click on this link and enter your social security number. <laughs> well, that's classic spear phishing, PH, for the benefit of the Steelers fans out there. And and no one will do it because they shouldn't do it. No one should ever click on a link. And, and so OPM is like in the 90s. It's absolutely asinine, and it, it not only threatens former federal employees, but it, from a national security perspective, when you're talking about the backgrounds of any potential asset that can be turned by enemies who are far more devious and nefarious than we are, I mean, we've opened up the whole store. This is why the server story, and I write in the Queen about the server. They're gone, right? I, I'm talking to her. The book is all in a voice addressing Mrs. Clinton, and I'm sure she's read it. And it says, the server's gone, right? Those emails are really gone. Guccifer doesn't have them. Well, in fact, I think Guccifer does have them. Yeah. And I asked a former senior member of the operations division of the CIA off the record. And I asked the former deputy director of the CIA, Mike Morrell, on the record. And they both said the same thing. Every foreign intelligence service has every email that went to and from that server for however long they operated for private server. They cannot, they are the best in the world except for us. We can sometimes stop them, which is why you can only use encrypted messaging. And so the server is a national security issue. Yes, it makes people not trust her. It makes her look paranoid. It makes her look odd. But that she was running a private intelligence network on a private server compromised by the foreign intelligence agencies, she had never to hold office again. It's a, it ought to be a chargeable offense, actually, to have done that, because there is just no doubt. My very first job, Ben, out of the law school, and the D.C. Circuit was at the Department of Justice as the Special Assistant to the Attorney General for Foreign Counterintelligence Surveillance Corps. 
So I'm familiar with this. Yeah, I wrote all of the uh, warrants for surveillance of the spies who were in the United States for the Attorney General to review. They come from the FBI, Office of Intelligence, over to the uh, Special Assistant, on to the AG. So that they had five reviews, the FISA court. We never got turned down. But I read for a year every single warrant on spies. There are hundreds and hundreds of spies in the United States. And, and we followed them forever, and we try and keep track of them. And they're... We do that to them, and they do that to us. Sure. And we have friendly governments that are spying on us. They all have Hillary's emails. I mean, she's, and you just mentioned, if you know someone's private life, you know how to turn them, right? If you know, you know what, everything. You know, and you can anticipate what they'll do. The Iranians know everything we were going to do during those four years. Everything, because they're very good at cyber warfare. And the Quds Force is very good. So I want, I, I brought it up on Meet the Press Sunday. I brought it up again on, on with uh, Bill Daly, who's the chief of staff. So I didn't know anything about it. David Axelrod admitted on me uh, on Morning Joe Monday. I didn't know anything about it. She kept it off the books. She ought not to be the president. But it's a, it's arguably, I mean, certainly a dereliction of duty, if not potentially a high crime and misdemeanor, frankly. But we know that the merits don't seem to matter when it comes to the Clintons, ultimately. So let's let's transition to something else that's really nefarious, tied to Hillary, that should be hung around her neck, but likely won't, because even Republicans have provided cover against it. That's Huma Abedin. And you bring up Andy McCarthy in the book. And Andy McCarthy, our listeners know, I I love the guy. He's an expert on Islamic supremacists. He is the most straight down the middle prosecutorial person credible when it comes to this. Why should the Hillary Clinton campaign already be working to discredit Andy McCarthy? Uh, Andy McCarthy's column on Huma Abedin is completely reproduced in my book, The Queen. I went to Jack Fowler, the publisher of National Review, and I said, Jack, you have to let me use this column in its entirety. Because what Andy does is walk through Huma's parents' ties to the Muslim Brotherhood and Huma's association with Muslim Brotherhood fronts when she was an undergraduate. Those ties have apparently not continued since she, in fact, became part of Clinton world. They're deeply troubling. And again, I go back to my DOJ years, and I went through three full-field FBI background investigations in order to get access to sensitive compartmented information when I went to the White House, they did another full-field background investigation to make sure that I, no one should survive a full-field background investigation with the ties that Andy McCarthy detailed in his column, which is reproduced in its entirety in The Queen. And you're right, he's a national asset. Andy McCarthy is as ethical as the day is long. He put the blind shake behind bars. He knows jihadism and Islamist fanaticism better than anyone. And I couldn't improve on the piece, so I just used it. And they were very nice at National Review granted me permission. You've been uh, publicly talking a lot when it comes to Hillary's opponents about the strengths of a few candidates, one of them being Ted Cruz. And one of the interesting nuggets in this book is that you write about the fact that Cruz, based upon the GOP calendar and the rules, interestingly enough, because you would think the the GOP establishment would work against more conservative candidates. But you say that he is the front runner based upon those rules. Yes. In so fact, explain that. Yeah, the, uh, the, for the benefit of the, again, the Steelers fans, in February of this year, the, the rights reforms, the previous rules, require that only four states vote, and those are Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, Nevada, and South Carolina. And Nevada is a caucus state that Rand Paul will win, but which will be dismissed because the, the Paul supporters there are deep and organized, and caucuses are really false positives of support, but he'll win it. He'll win some delegates. So the, the three races that matter are Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. And what really matters are New Hampshire and South Carolina. 
Uh, Ted Cruz has an enormous amount of under-the-radar strength in Iowa among young people. I ran 12 mock Iowa caucuses at the Young Conservative Leadership Conference last summer. I'm going to do it again next week. Uh, Ted Cruz won a plurality in each of the six original caucuses and a straight-out majority in the revotes after they had argued, uh, reflecting deep ties into social media. He'll do well in Iowa. He'll get some delegates. He'll go to New Hampshire. He'll finish in the top four or five. He'll go to South Carolina. He'll finish in the top three, and then they go to Texas. And he will win Texas on March 1st, which means that coming out of the first 31 days of voting, the person with the most delegates is going to be Ted Cruz, according to the calendar. He's also got $37 million in the bank, the Mercer family behind him, and an almost unparalleled ability. Rubio and Carly Fiorona are very good. Marco and Carly are very good as well. Those three are among the most able talkers I've ever met. And I think he'll be able to run the board, if anyone can run the board. And it's highly likely, in my view, that we're going to an open convention, a, bro a brokered convention at which anything could happen and probably will. Are you going to be in Cleveland yourself? I may. Okay. Smoke-filled rooms. Smoke-filled rooms and actually computer dissection and money and the, the big donors. It's going to be wild, and I'm from Northeastern Ohio, so I'm glad. The most interesting convention since the one that nominated Lincoln in Chicago in 1860 will occur on the shores of Lake Erie in the, in the city of Champions 2016. We, we lost this year because LeBron can't beat five people by himself. It's tough. Are you a basketball fan? I'm a bit of a basketball fan, yeah. Delhi. Delhi was good for a couple of games, but you know the the, the MVP for the uh, the the Warriors is Kelly. What's his last name from the Celtics who dislocated Kevin Love's shoulder? That's their MVP. Yeah, Delhi was probably the best story though to come they out won. of the playoffs. It was, it was terrific. Delhi Abdova from St. Mary's, uh, and he's a terrific story in Cleveland. Love. He'll never pick up a check in Cleveland again. <laughs> One other insight that I thought was interesting as relates to Cruz, and, and we should talk about some of the other candidates too, but is that you say Hillary should potentially not debate him if he were the nominee. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that because I think that he would just wipe the floor with her. Sure. Would he, though, potentially cross the line and pull a Rick Lazio and go up in her, you know, in other words, is the likability issue, and I, personally, I like Ted Cruz. Full disclosure, I donated a small amount of money to Ted Cruz, so okay. I, I, I love him. That said, is he likable enough to the American public to win? Full disclosure, I donated to a Senate campaign. I, he practically lived on my show during the primary against David Dewhurst. I love Ted. Uh, you don't win nine Supreme Court arguments by accident. He would not. You stay in the zone. You are controlled. If I have any critique of Ted Cruz, it's that he acts like a Supreme Court advocate on a radio show, meaning he speaks at the pace that Supreme Court advocates speak at, which is very deliberate and respectful. And sometimes it takes too long, you got to move it up. Come on, Ted, move, hurry up! Uh, and, and he does. When he gets giddy-up, he giddy-ups. But he would never step over the line. And my advice to Hillary and the Queen is don't step in the ring. Because uh, he won't step over the line. He'll, he'll, as I say, he'll take you apart, shoulder and joint. He'll be like uh, Billy the Butcher in Gangs of New <laughs> York, right? He'll, he'll absolutely destroy her. And so what Nixon did in 72 was to refuse to debate George McGovern. And what Hillary ought to do is say, and I put it in the Queen, if the Republican Party wants to nominate a modern Goldwater, that's their choice. I don't have to dignify their choice. I believe America is with me and will agree that this country does not need the fanaticism of Ted Cruz and his extremism. They don't need the Hugh Hewitts and the Glenn Becks of the world. They don't need the Rush Limbaugh of the world that have a national platform for their venom and their hate. Vote, I'm not going to debate them. And, and she doesn't even need to say it. She can have her husband say it. Yeah, or, or any of a thousand surrogates. She's <laughs> going to say no. And what are we going to do? Complain? The media will say, yeah, 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 that's right. 
He's kind of crazy. And, uh, Ted Cruz has said they've invented a new category for him. They have uh, stupid and scary, but now they've invented crazy. Crazy. And, uh, and I'd like to point out to him, actually, they used that once before in 64 with one ad, and they're going to cold water him. But he knows that, and he's preparing for that. So a couple other candidates. What is your view of, if I was Hillary, I would probably want to run against Jeb Bush more than any other any of the other candidates. What do you think about that assessment? And then do you think that she is most scared of Marco Rubio? Uh, the latter first. Marco Rubio is her worst nightmare. And I have no dog in this fight. I'm going to be on the stage. Let, let a thousand flowers bloom. All of you do your best. Carly was looking at me funny yesterday because I told her, in the Queen, I put you in the second rank of candidates. And she that was three months ago when I went to press. And she's took gotten the rocket ship since then. She's already at 1.8%. She'll be on the debate stage. So she gave me a hard time, but she'll forgive me. Uh, but if you look at it just as a matchup, the NBA, how do you match up against LeBron? You put your best player on LeBron. Marco Rubio matches up best against Hillary. I think they planted the stories in the New York Times about his so-called speed vote. Which, which backfired. Vote, which backfired. And the parking tickets, which backfired. Because they're not very good. They're ham-handed, fat, and and dumb, and stupid, big organization. Do they have nothing better? No, they, that's it. And Rubio has only been vetted once, but it was a statewide race up against a creep. And Charlie Chris is a creep, so he yeah. used all the oppo research in the world. A trial lawyer, uh, and you can be sure he did. So I'm pretty sure that, that Rubio has been vetted as well. But I don't think they want to run against Jeff. I think they really would prefer to run against Rand Paul, who would split the Republican Party, uh, or they would like to run against Ted Cruz, who they can most easily caricature with the assistance of the media, which will require you and me to work overtime. Those are their two preferreds. Their nightmare is Rubio. Uh, Jeb is probably their second nightmare. Why is Jeb a nightmare? Uh, because he wins Florida. Puts Florida in play immediately. Either Rubio or, or Jeb takes Florida off yep. the map. We win. Uh, and that they are both fluent in Spanish is an enormously important asset win. Uh, Jeb Bush announced, and he went into Spanish. I was cheering. And I, I got some Twitter people, oh, there's a terrible one country, one nation. Do you want to win? I want to win. Telemundo, Univision, are, there are lots, there are million, tens of millions of Americans who are, consume their Spanish primarily, uh, consume their media primarily in Spanish. Obama My, targeted them. Yeah, seven to one. Seven they had to seven one. ads on Spanish media. And I am part of the Salem Media Group. And we own a lot of Christian Spanish stations that deal directly to the Pentecostal Spanish population of America, and they listen. And you know what? If you can talk to them fluently, like Jeb did in his announcement, like Marco can do, like Ted can do, though Ted's Cruz's Spanish is by his own admission, not as good as Rubio's. And you know who else can speak Spanish very well? Who's that? Mike Lee. Mike Lee is fluent in Spanish. Fascinating. Uh, I didn't know. He did his Mormon mission somewhere in the United States, maybe San Antonio, I can't remember. But Mike Lee went off, and he says sometimes on the floor of the Senate, Marco and Ted and I, who are my best friends in the Senate, this is Mike Lee, yeah. I'm not using their first name, will carry on a conversation in Spanish to the annoyance of all the Democrats, for <laughs> whom, you know, allegedly representing the poor, downtrodden, illegal immigration population, and here are the three Spanish speakers with their heart in the community. So I, I think that is an asset that most Republicans are fundamentally unaware of, how big that market is. One interesting thing about Rand Paul that you say in the book, and I'm quoting here, is that you say... Senator Rand Paul is, quote, the best bridge to Chelsea's tomorrow. Yes. Explain that. Uh, he would shatter the Republican Party. So in The Queen, I write about this as I think she thinks about it. How is her campaign and her presidency going to set up Chelsea's career? 
including Chelsea's presidency. I really do think they want a lease at 1600 that runs forever. Sure. I advocate that she campaign on repealing the two-term limit and appeal to the Obama supporters who wish they could vote for him a third time and all the people who think that Bill Clinton would have beat George W. Bush, even to some Bushies who wish he'd been around to carry on the war, right? The two-term limit annoys a heck of a lot of people, and the framers didn't put it in there for a reason. And I think it ought to be gone. I don't believe in term limits. I believe in the framers. But what when she looks at, at bridging it to Chelsea, she wants to shatter the Republican Party. You shatter the Republicans by taking back the Reagan Democrats who were afraid of the Soviet Union, who are now afraid of ISIS. Senator Paul, rightly or wrongly, is accused of being a non-interventionist. And you would lose some national security. would lose me, and you would lose you. You'd lose some national security Republicans who were afraid he would be too non-interventionist and too skosh when it came to defense spending. And he did not do much to alleviate that concern in the recent round of votes on the defense appropriations bill uh, for 2016, he did not vote to plus up defense despite a lack of offsets because we're way underfunded, we're way underfunded. And he said, well, I'm not gonna vote for it anyway. Rubio and Cruz did. Rand Paul has had the worst timing potentially of any presidential candidate that I can remember in my short lifetime. But he will be around a long time. Uh, he's not going anywhere. He is the Bob Taft of the next 30 years in the Senate. He's loved in Kentucky. I campaigned for Mitch McConnell in Kentucky and talked to a lot of Rand. Matt Bevin's a friend of mine running in Kentucky. I endorsed him on the show. And Rand will never, he's not going to drive primary opponent, which I think is odd, um, given that he's such a uh, lightning rod. But he'll be around for a long time. And in Cleveland, I can't see him on the ticket. I really can't. But he'll have a lot of delegates. He has the highest floor and the lowest ceiling of all the Republicans. He's got his father's supporters plus young people plus a percentage of the rest of the libertarians in the country. Yeah, and, and a lot of people who think he's articulate. He's also quite the committed evangelical who does medical missions in places like Guatemala doing eye surgery for people. Tremendously warm and sweet man. Um, and and Ron Paul, by the way, was tremendously liked by everyone. Uh, Mitt Romney has told me everybody liked Ron <laughs> Paul. And I, I won't name a, a federal judge knows him that told me he's the nicest man ever. And Rand Paul has got that from his father. Some of his supporters are off the parapet crazy, and they call my radio show all the time, and they don't help Rand Paul. You know, they don't want, you know, those people who are black flag libertarians who don't want any government, don't want any controls on drugs, and someone wants to be a heroin addict, let them be, they don't help Rand Paul, and, and he's done a lot to keep them away from him. At the end of your book, you walk through the transcripts of a number of interviews with everyone from David Axelrod to Newt Gingrich, and on and on, I really like the Axelrod interview, just because you asked him about Obama's Columbia transcripts and all the rest. I'm glad you probed him on that. What, what were the key insights? Can I ask you, your Columbia guy? Yeah. Did anyone, does anyone know what happened? Your transcripts will be up there forever. They forever. have to be there forever because job employers want them. And you will call them up and say, please release my transcripts. I will gladly release my transcripts to anyone who wants to and, see them. And so when I asked that, Sarad, he didn't answer the question. If you'll notice, he said, why would you want to know that? I said, well, I'm just interested. I went to law school. I got a B in crimes. I'd like to know how he did in crimes. You know, Curious. And I am curious, and there's a reason they're not out there. What there's do you think it is? There. There's, I mean, there are, there's obviously conspiracy theory and there's fact. There are, first of all, the fact that no one in his class can really pin him down as being at Columbia in and of itself is something that's very suspect. Another thing is that Bill Ayers, I believe, was in New York around the same time he was there, which in and of itself is a, is a questionable thing. To me, it has to be that there's either someone who funded his education or something in his background that he does not want revealed. Maybe someone. He's an awful student. And that, 
that you know Occam's razor would indicate that that's probably the answer. Out, which is the most prestigious school in Hawaii in an era of affirmative action. And all he could do is get into Occidental. And I'm sorry, Occidental, in, in the time that President Obama went to college, you were a second-tier school, maybe a third-tier school. So why isn't he at Columbia coming out of Oxford? Because he was a terrible student opponent. He was stoned all the time by his own admission. Yep. Listen to his audio book, uh, Dreams from My Father. He's part of the Chum Gang. So he's stoned all the time. He had terrible grades. He went to Occidental, transferred to Columbia. Probably didn't go to class. Probably got D's, C's. And at, at Harvard Law School, where he was the president of the Law Review, that's not the editor of the law. That's not the editor-in-chief. It's not the managing editor. It's an honorific position where you're the glad-hander-in-chief. And it doesn't require grades to get on. So I know law school grades. He was in law school not long after us. I know what the first I've been teaching law school for 20 years. You got a grade in contracts. You got a grade in crimes. You got a grade in civil procedure. You got a grade. And they're, they're graded on a curve because that's how you, it, it's hard. It's hard in law school. A lot of people get D's and people don't know that. Um, you can still get on the law review, though, with D's if you're voted on by the faculty or the writing competition. So I think it reveals an academic record much worse than George W. Bush's, which is why it's not out there. And the, the one insight that we do have from his time at Columbia, which I find fascinating, is he wrote this one article, and it was on nuclear proliferation, and it was very anti-nuclear proliferation in a world without nuclear weapons. So clearly the thinking has not changed all that much from the time he was a Columbia student, even though we have no records of it whatsoever, to now. You know, in The Queen, I write about what Hillary and Bill really think about President Obama. And in detest the game, him. Yeah, they, they detest him, and they do not think highly of his intellect or his abilities. And I, I credit Mark Halperin's Game Change. I can't think of Halperin's co-author right now. Uh, I'm sorry. I can't think of his name. But in Game Change, they quote Bill Clinton as saying, he's just an off-the-rack Chicago Paul. Why are we losing to him? And they couldn't understand. It was a historical moment. It was a lightning strike. It was an unusual alignment of circumstances that got him into the presidency, but they must have nothing but seething contempt for his maladministration. I mean, he's the worst president in American history, just by far. Uh, the worst president, just objectively measure where we are in the world. ISIS, uh, I know we're running long on time, but Stanley McChrystal, I go back to that 100 million contacts a day from the Islamic State. We had won the war in 2011. The war was won. Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama lost it. Last night, I'm such a geek, I stayed up late watching the C-SPAN, I was following the South Carolina story, and then I switched over to the C-SPAN and they were replaying the House Armed Services Committee hearings with Ash Carter and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Dempsey, mm -hmm. and uh, there's a Democrat in Massachusetts, decorated Marine, um, remember his he's, a, he's a right-leaning Democrat. Right-leaning right Democrat, I mean, Democrats should take a look at, this guy could end up on the ticket with Hillary, because he's fought the fight and he was pressing that we won the war, what's going on there? And then the most interesting exchange occurred when um, from Oklahoma, Bridenstein says, hey, uh, we had to pull out in 11 because we didn't have a status forces group, right? <laughs> and Ash Carter, the Secretary of Defense, says, yeah, and then says, yeah, well, we got three, how many we got there now? 3,500 troops. We got a status of a forces agreement? <laughs> no, we have an exchange of diplomatic letters. So we really didn't have to leave in 2011. And of course we didn't. Obama and Clinton lost the war. And as a result, we had ISIS. That's it. She shouldn't win. But the prince, the queen, is intended to make that very clear. And I hope conversations like this alert people to how to attack her. I'll just ask one last question because you've been very generous with your time. And I'll return to, to Nixon actually on this. When Nixon was running, there was a notion of a return to normalcy, and there was unrest in the streets and all of this strife. And we've seen 
the Flames stoked from Ferguson to Baltimore. God forbid, hopefully not in Charleston. Oh, he's definitely a white supremacist. He might be a drugged up, schizophrenic white supremacist, but he was photographed wearing a Rhodesia uh, a badge and a apartheid South. I mean, he's he, and they took him in for an hour. And I, I know black churches. I go to black churches. Uh, I have been in fellowship with the first African Methodist Episcopal Church for 25 years in Los Angeles. I know Cecil Murray. One of my guests, I know what they did. They knew he was an obviously troubled, crazy young man. And he, they took him in for an hour and they were praying with him and they were working with him. And they, you, you know when edgy people are around you. You know when the sick people are among you. They didn't know he had a gun. And, they, and so it's a terrible thing. And if people use this to stoke animosity, they're evil. Because he is evil and he's demented and he's done an evil, terrible thing that has ruined the lives of scores of people in South Carolina, good people. Christian, wonderful human beings in the most important black church in Charleston. My friend Sarah here is sitting in the room with us, is from Charleston. Everybody knows about Emmanuel AME. Uh, if anyone uses this incident, that's deplorable. Hopefully it doesn't happen. There is a live issue, though, with Hillary repudiating Bill Clinton, who sort of was relatively tough on crime. And you have folks like Bill de Blasio in New York who have taken a hands-off policy. Wow. and. Crime has spiked. And the Heather McDonald wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal recently talking about spikes in crime everywhere. And there's sort of a victimology element to it, which is, well, we've locked people up. It's destroying black families in America. And so I just wonder, could there be a backlash and a push for law and order? Because black lives do matter. And when you release felons from prison, the people that get hurt most are the people who live in the communities where those felons are let out into. God forbid that 2016 is 1968. You weren't alive. I was. I was 12 years old. I was born in 56 and 59 years old. And I remember 1968 like yesterday because you'd come home and we were 200 people a week were being killed in Vietnam. Uh, the cities were on fire. Youngstown had a riot. I grew up in Warren. Warren had racial violence in, in both of its high schools, not my Catholic high school, but all over the place. Uh, we had the assassinations of Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy. I remember waking up. I was a Bobby. I had a Bobby Kennedy poster, right? I'm 12 years old, but I know I'm a Catholic kid in, sure. in Northeastern Ohio. I had the uh, Peter Max Bobby Kennedy poster in my, my room. Cried. You know, it, it was terrible, horrible. And 1968 is the worst year this country has ever had. And if 2016 is that, um, I don't know who benefits from that. Nixon skillfully, adroitly, and vaguely told people. He would put the country, he was accused of running a Southern strategy. In fact, he was running a strategy of comfort in a time of fear. Now, we are going to, we live in a time of fear. I mean, I'm, I'm in New York. I was down at Times Square last night, got back late, and uh, went down to the Times Square around midnight, because I always like to go there at midnight. Thought, good, the, there are two Elmos, um, the couple of characters from Toy Story, and, uh, and the snowman from Frozen, right? So I was taking a picture of it. So everything must be okay in Times Square. <laughs> Because when I first moved here, before you were born in 1980... You weren't hanging out in Times You did not go to Times Square at midnight. You did not do that. And so, God forbid that we go back. People have got to realize how tenuous it is to build this free and easy of a society. And right now, we're on the margin. The name of the book is The Queen, The Epic Ambition of Hillary and the Coming of a Second Clinton Era. And we've been speaking with its author, Yu Yuit. Yu, thanks for joining us. Sam, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Continue good luck in your career. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com slash books, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks, and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.